Just imagine you are at a track meet, and you are one of the contestants, and it's, they call up your race. And so you come up to the track, and you're preparing to race. And you see, uh, if you ever watch athletes, like the Olympics are coming up this summer, and you see them all shaking their legs and this and that, it's not because they need to shake their legs or there's something cramping up. It's because of the nervousness, right, and the energy that's being built up and the expectation of now running this race. And so how many of you have ever run in a track meet before uh, at your run track? One, two, only two or three. There are three of you, okay. You know how nervous it can get. I ran high and low, high and low hurdles in high school. So you come up to the blocks and you're all nervous and all this energy and you, 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 you place your feet in your, in your, in your, your, uh, your track cleats in the back of the, of the blocks and you're waiting and you, you, you kneel down and you, know, you wait for the starter to say, ready, get set, and then they fire the gun and you burst out. And for the 110 high and low hurdles, you know, the race takes only about, depending on how fast you run, 10 or 12 seconds. And so all this energy, all this prep for 10 seconds. You know, in the Olympics, some people run only one race, and that's the only race they run. And for 10 seconds, their whole life goes before them. <laughs> but what happened before all that? Well, it was training and preparation for years, possibly, right? And obviously, training and preparation, part of that is, is running in lots of races. So it's not just training, it's also the running and qualifying of races. And Paul uses the picture of running a race as the Christian life, and we use that here as well, because we're looking today at discipleship and training as as becoming a disciple. And this is something that is an ongoing thing. You don't just kind of get trained and then you, you go do ministry. You know, this is you get trained and you do ministry and you continue to train and be discipled by the Lord and you continue to, to do ministry. Very important today. And so we're looking at this section. Uh, and the next section as well, next week, we're going to be continuing to look at Jesus' training of his disciples. And this started, of course... Uh, of course, Jesus' ministry is about three years long, and his training and discipleship of his disciples and all his followers was constant and consistent. And last, in, the, in chapter 8, a few sermons ago, we talked about the life of uh, someone who is a follower of Christ, the life of um, someone whose heart has been transformed, has been changed, uh, who now desires to live, and, uh, live for the Lord and, be, and, and to please him, Right? And so it is a life of giving to others. It's a life of giving to, 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 to God. That is to die to oneself. Remember in chapter 8, Jesus talked about if someone were to follow me, they need to die to themselves. And it is, this, it is giving of ourselves to others, giving of ourselves to God. It's someone who's willing to submit to God, right? And to do God's will and be willing to do anything, even the lowliest of things, just as... Kyle was talking about, uh, in deference to others, do the lowliest of things. And even, yes, even to suffer for doing the Lord's work. And if that is what is required, then that is what is required. To die to self, to pick up your cross, and to follow Jesus. And Jesus' life was one that had a lot of suffering and disappointment and, 
and um, tribulation. So yes, this is following Jesus. A selfless giving, dying to self, a life that he's given us. And, of course, the world doesn't want this kind of thing. <laughs> Nobody wants that. And many people, unfortunately, come to Christianity and they hear messages that talk about how if you're a Christian, you sh- everything should be fine. You should be healthy and wealthy and wise and you should have no problems. And we know those kinds of false teachers and we see them all the time. That is not the life of a disciple of Christ. Now, that is not to say, again, that, like I said earlier, we don't have a, 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 a soul-satisfying type of life, a, a life that has meaning. We do have a life that is, has meaning. But it is not right now a one of, of, of just getting everything we want. No. Our joy comes in serving the one that our heart is for, isn't it? Doesn't, don't we derive joy from serving the ones we love? Absolutely. Do we look at it as sacrifice? No, although sometimes we think it is. But do we look at it as sacrifice when we, when we give and die to the ones we love so that we see them encouraged and elevated and, and trained and all these good things? No, we die to self to do that. So that's, that is what we're talking about here. And so discipleship is... It's not easy, um, but Jesus knows us, right? He knows how we're made. He knows how best to train us. He knows what is best for us and, and, and what kind of training regimen we need. And every one of us have different ones because we're built a little bit differently. And um, we're made a little bit differently, but he knows us. And he's very gracious to give ongoing training, ongoing discipleship to all those, all those who desire to follow him and to give Him glory and honor. So let us pray and let's look at the text this morning to see a couple of ways that the Lord trains us and graciously uh, carries us along. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is Your Word and therefore it is without error and without fault. It is inspired in the fact that You have breathed it out. And that means that every word, every letter, every jot and tittle comes from you and therefore is perfect. And it is something that we desire to know. We know that your word transforms us, changes us, and uh, your Holy Spirit uses it to change us into the image of your Son, Lord, and that is whom we want to be like and that is whom we want to love. And so we want to uh, love you by obeying you, by doing what it is that pleases you and brings you the most honor. And we don't do it for selfish reasons, oh Lord. Um, help us, Lord. Last week we talked about belief, Lord, this, that man's profession of faith. We believe, we do trust in you, but help us in our unbelief. In other words, Lord, we, even though we believe and have the faith which you have yourself given to us, uh, we are still dependent on you. We are reliant upon you, Lord, um, because the faith that we have is not generated from ourselves. It does not come from within. It comes from without. It comes from you. And so we are dependent on you, Lord, for all these things. Help us this morning to be dependent on you as we listen to your word. To be convicted where we need to be convicted. To be encouraged where we, we are con- encouraged. All along, Lord, train us, disciple us, even right now, in this next few minutes. And uh, all this, again, to your glory, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So just look, we're going to talk about 
four things today out of uh, our, our uh, text today. And it is that we are to, to learn to trust a God who knows all, to learn our place and therefore ability to serve, to learn to work with others, and then again, learning to trust in a God who knows and sees our actions. So the first and last are kind of related a little bit, uh, just a little bit different application. And then um, let us go forward. So first is to learn to trust in a God who knows all. Verses 30 and 32, as we saw this morning, was read. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Jesus was looking for a time again for his teaching with his disciples, and he didn't want to have distractions. For he was teaching his disciples. That's the reason why he didn't want anybody to know where they were. Saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They, they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they, that is the disciples and those that are with him, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Of course, Jesus here is foretelling once again his death and resurrection. And it is for the second time. The first time was in chapter 8. And actually he'll do it again in chapter 10. So three times he does this. And this serves many purposes. One is that Jesus reveals his mission and his, his work of redemption to them. Which was not obvious to the disciples. You've heard me say it over and over again. Their view of the Messiah was wrong. They saw him as a political leader that it would destroy all their enemies and that they would rule over the earth um, along, with them, along with Jesus. So uh, Jesus is here telling the fact that, no, there's something else going on, something that's actually a little bit more important than that, at least for right now. It is certainly more important because, of course, Jesus' second coming, he will come in power and might and, and all that, and he will do that, but not this time. This time he tells of his redemptive work. And this redemptive work is also a pattern of life for the disciples. Uh, they have already seen, uh, we have already seen a few sections ago, what the, again, what the life of a disciple entails. Again, dying to self, picking up one's cross, following Jesus. Um, and, it, and we see it here again. In order for all the disciples of Jesus to actually do these things, they need to see that, and they will see, the pattern that Jesus sets. And the pattern is the pattern of a, of a servant. Of a, and, and, of course, we know in Jesus' case, it is a suffering servant. Um, and what could be more encouraging for the disciples to know this, especially after his resurrection, when they finally remember his words and see this, they have encouragement. So Jesus is laying the, foregr- the ground for their encouragement um, because his life is one of trials and suffering. And so, when we see our Lord and our Savior who has a life of, of like this, then this gives us encouragement because we will be going through the same thing. This pattern of suffering before glory, the cross before a crown, is everywhere in Scripture. Everywhere in Scripture. Especially in the life of the Messiah. How many of us have gone through this very cycle ourselves? We don't just get things automatically. We don't get awards and rewards and, and things like that just automatically. No, we have to work for them. We work uh, for them. Just to, Right now we have so many people finishing classes, going through finals, and many of our young people are graduating from high school and college, and these things don't just happen. Um, you can't graduate from something and be uh, given 
honor for something that you haven't done. You know you have to go through years of studies and memorizations and, and yes, agonizing nights and days to try to do papers and learn all kinds of things. And we're tested in this period of time. And then when we come out of the test, we pass, we get approved, we get certified. Um, we go through this uh, for the pastorate. I remember when I was, when we were at Aliso Creek Presbyterian Church, our sister church in Laguna Niguel, um, I was interested in becoming ordained in, the, in our denomination at that time, and we weren't sure where we were going to be, but I, I asked to be, uh, to be present in uh, the ordination exams for uh, one of our associate pastors who was being ordained. And he was transferring his ordination from another denomination, and I sat there quietly observing the proceedings, and... Afterward, I said to the two presbytery examiners um, and said something like, but that wasn't so hard, that wasn't so bad, because I'd heard about the PCA and how hard it is to get ordained, and it is, very difficult. Um, I said, that wasn't so bad, I think I could pass that exam. And the two examiners said to me, oh, oh, for you it's different, you've never been ordained. Uh, for someone who is already ordained, the exam is not as rigorous because they're trying to find out what their views are and whether they comport with our views. And, and so the fire of sorts, that they, they don't have to go through the fire because they've already been through the fire of ordination. But for me, I haven't gone through the fires, if you will, of ordination and the rigors of ordination. And in the PCA, it is one of the toughest places to be ordained because we take ordination very seriously for someone to be able to handle the Word of God correctly. And um, in many presbyteries, you would hear, oh, you won't pass the first time around, you know. And so <laughs> I, I, when I came to Sycamore and looked at, my, uh, looked at the process for ordination, you know, I took it very seriously. And I remember those words, and I studied hard. Um, and um, so I had to go through the fire before I could be ordained and approved and received by the presbytery uh, to preach and to minister. And no one in our denomination gets ordained because they want to be. No, you have to go through the tough parts of doing the work and the preparation and to be tested, not only written exams, not only papers or theology papers and exegetical papers, but you have to, uh, to undergo an oral exam by the committee. And then you have to stand in front of the entire Presbyterian and they could question you on anything they want. It's a very daunting process, but also very rewarding, I must say. And in God's kingdom and in His economy, He does the same thing. We don't just instantly become mature Christians. Right? We're not instantly mature. No. Um, we don't just become uh, you know, great, wonderful Christians when, we're, when we profess faith and are baptized. No. In God's infinite wisdom, He causes us to grow spiritually. Right? Through tests of faith, through difficulties, through circumstances, through situations. And yes, sometimes it entails suffering and tribulation. And while he does so, he is always with us, right? And he's walking alongside, carrying us, sustaining us all, training us, even when we don't feel like he is or don't realize it, but he is. So we go through these things, and he carries us, he teaches us. Um, it doesn't, it's just not given to us. In fact, that's one of the mottos of the Marines. It's like... Mm, Something like always earned, never given. You know. And during the process, we of course, like last week we said, we learn to lean on Him. We learn to rely on Him. We depend on Him. That is what inculcates a humble faith. 
a humble faith is one in which we are increasingly dependent on God and that we realize that we need Him more than we ever did. That causes us automatically to be humble, right? And to rely on Him for our faith. And so, that's one of the, the good encouragements about this is that our Lord and Savior went through all this. So when we go through the similar kinds of things, and the disciples have, and they will, there is encouragement, isn't there? Is there not? And we get encouraged by it. The other things that come out of this, that come out of the fact that God is doing His redemptive work, is that um, He's not just foretelling the future. Um, it is so that the disciples, again, will one day recall this and understand what He is saying and be encouraged by it. It is also to show that the events here, it's not just for his readers there, but also for Mark writing this. Mark puts this in here for all the readers of his day and all the readers since then for us to, to know something very important, which is that God planned redemption for us. This is not just something that happened. No, he planned it. This is not by accident. This is not something that man does or man has planned. Um, and we need to know that. We need to understand that. And because we need to know that God loves us. And this is one way he does show his love. And one of the greatest ways is that he has planned redemption for us. And part of that work of redemption is that Jesus had to suffer and die, be killed and suffer on the cross and then be resurrected. And even more than that, related to that point, there are many who would teach us and apply um, Christianity by saying things like, well, you know, and if Nancy brought this up while discussing to somebody else just recently about, you know, oh, well, you know, God gives us trials and that's Him, but when, but when, he's, when, when we have cancer or when you have terrible things that happen to us or there's terrible disasters or there is, um, um, you know, a disease or, or there's mental illness, those don't come from God. And... Um, that's a very dangerous attitude. No, all things come from God, even these things that, um, that are very difficult. Um, God sends us these things in some way for our good. We may not see it, and we may not even know all the time why and the reason for it, but in some way it always glorifies God. And this is related to what I'm going to talk about now here. And I bring that up because there's a lot of wrong teaching, wrong theology, and false teachers out there who, who, who are prosperity preachers that talk about this. And they talk about how, oh, how could God you know, send His only Son to suffer? That's, that's cosmic child abuse. And you've heard me say this in years past. And, and, and they can never understand. And they, they'll say, oh, that's not the kind of God I worship. Oh, no, I worship a loving God. I, he would never... He would never do this to his only son. And that is absolutely wrong. It is precisely because of God's love that he sends his own son. And yes, it is the wrath of God himself that is placed on the son of God. Yes, men killed Jesus and they are responsible. But um, God the Father planned to send his own son. God the Father planned to put on him the wrath that we deserve. And that is important for us to know because that is great love. That He would send His Son to stand in our place to take the wrath that we deserve. That is just unimaginable. That is great love. 
And that is great sacrifice. And so people need to know, God sent the Son of Man. God is delivering him into the hands of evil men. God is the one who kills him. Yes, he is. And this is not cosmic child abuse. This is redemption. God is the one who raises him after three days. This is all part of the plan of God. If we believe in a sovereign God, then all these things are under his rule. And whether we understand it or not, it's all under God's rule. And whether we realize uh, or have... Whether we uh, understand the reasons for all of this or not, it's still true. Whether we know the reasons why we have to suffer and go through all these things, it's still true. And it's under God's sovereignty. And then, because of that, we can rest in Him. We can rest in the fact that He is in control. That's, those are some of the things that come out of this passage that I was um, 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 just, just meditating upon. So, we should be encouraged that God is in control. We should be encouraged that God had a plan of uh, redemption for us. We should be encouraged that He loves us so much that He was willing to send His Son to do these horrible things uh, in, on our behalf. We should be encouraged when we ourselves go through trials, tribulations, and sufferings, knowing that our Lord went through a much more for our sake. So, be encouraged. Learn to trust in the God who knows all and He knows everything. Even if we don't understand the reasons why things happen, He does. And we can rest in that. Okay, second. Learning our place and therefore learning to serve. Now this scene immediately follows Jesus' pronouncement. And isn't it just like the disciples, right? To not understand Jesus. And actually even to start thinking in, in the opposite way or actually continue to uh, think in the opposite direction. Jesus just talked about a life of suffering and death, and here they're arguing about who is greater among them. That's just like us, isn't it? Um, they are worried and concerned about their status and position in the kingdom. Jesus is talking about suffering and dying, and what it means to be a disciple, right? To die to self, pick up your cross. And so they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you all discussing on the way? And again, just like last week, Jesus knows why, but he's drawing them out. And he's trying to get them to think about their faith or lack of faith. But they kept silent. Yeah, obviously, because they are already getting, hopefully, well, not obviously, but I'm thinking they're already getting convicted. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Again, they're incorrect thinking about the Messiah and the Messiah's role and their role along with the Messiah again plays into this scenario. They're thinking he is going to be the king and, and they're going to be his, his rulers with them, right? They're going to rule alongside, but they don't understand. That's why they just don't understand Jesus' explanation of his suffering and dying and being rejected. And so they don't see their role correctly in the kingdom. Um... How are they going to rule? And they're imagining, you know, wow, how are they going to be able to sit up there? And what's this going to look like? And who's going to be greater? Um, and they start naturally arguing about that amongst themselves. Because they are, after all, the 12 disciples. The 12 special guys that were picked by Jesus himself, right? They're the special elite. Right? The elite. So, Jesus continues to train and instruct. And now he declares the position that they are in, their role, in verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And of course, God knows our hearts all the time. He goes right to the heart. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and 
servant of all. Wow. So imagine you're thinking you're going to sit there and rule alongside the Messiah over the entire world. And he says this. Makes no sense to them. They, they just don't understand. So the greatest in the kingdom of the Messiah is a servant? How, how can this be? So Jesus helps them out. Jesus is so gracious, right? He knows how weak we are. Jesus helps us out all the time by helping us out. He gives an example. Um, so the example he uses is, a, is, a, is a, uses an example about status, pointing to those who are lowly in status in their society. And who does he point to? He points to the children. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. He, so he uses an object lesson. He uses an object lesson, the child. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So children in those days, you know, did not hold a special status in Roman society. They were not um, prominent and they were basically dismissed much of the time, right? Just kind of keep them off to the side. It's a very different attitude that exists uh, now in our own society. So we have to be careful that we never, when we're drawing out from Scripture, the meaning of Scripture, we never put into Scripture our context. That's why we, uh, we focus on a, what's called grammatical historical exegesis, that we look at the grammar, and what, the, what the text actually says, and the historical context from within which it sits. And we never read into Scripture, we always draw out from Scripture, and also the context from which it's in. So, um, in our day... Children are elevated in many ways. And some of it is right in the sense that it came out of um, abuse of children. For example, in, early, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, children would be used for labor uh, and abused. And so we wanted to come up with laws to protect children because, you know, child labor laws. That's a, that's a good thing. And, and that was to protect children so that they would not be exploited. So those are good things. Of course, we all care, care about children. Uh, however, in our day... Uh, some of the motivation is not because we want to protect children and not because we want to protect them from being exploited, but in our political day, it's because we want to minimize parental oversight. And we see even in international law, underhanded laws are trying to, they sound really good about protecting children, but in reality, their agenda is to circumvent the parent and take away the rights of the parent. And so it looks like we're elevating children, but we're not. So anyways, we have both kinds of things that we're, in our days, that we're elevating children, both good ways, with good motivation and bad motivation. The point is, in those days, children had no rights. None. Um, And Jesus uses them as an example of how one is great. We must be careful about uh, focusing on our position and our status in life, right? Whether it be at home, at work, at church, anywhere. Um, Once we lose sight of our Lord Jesus, our tendency is to look in and look at ourselves. And then our tendency is to elevate ourselves usually above others. What Kyle was just saying, you know, consider others better than yourselves. We need to maintain that attitude. But of course, the only way we can is by the help of the Holy Spirit and keeping our eyes on Jesus himself and how great he is. And how great he is, is that we see him as the suffering servant. Isaiah 52 and 53 are descriptions, some of the best descriptions of, 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 of the Messiah. And, and really, uh, he appears in those two chapters as the suffering servant. That is who we're focusing on, keeping our mind and, 
and hearts focused on Him. So, um, if Jesus is the suffering servant, then why would we expect that we would be any different? And of course, we remember, you know, no one is greater than our Master. No one is greater than His Master. And if Jesus is the suffering servant, then why are we surprised that we should also be a servant? And sometimes we do suffer. So, of course, Jesus is saying, if you want to be great and first in the kingdom, you must be first to be willing to serve and to serve the lowest of society. And it doesn't have, it's not just the poor and the disenfranchised, the orphan, the widow, anybody who's underprivileged or disabled or mentally impaired. It, it, it's whoever needs help, you know, especially those who are underprivileged and, and have no way, uh, have no help at all uh, from the government or society or they can't help themselves. Are we willing to serve the lowest in society? You know, first, those who are helpless. Anybody who's helpless, really. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to die ourselves, to die ourselves to do that? Uh, because he says, if you receive a child who is of one of the lowliest status, then you are actually receiving who? Yeah. He's turning everything upside down. Because serving the lowly, you know, doesn't usually draw too much attention. And serving the lowly, there's no glory in it in this world, right? But Jesus says, if you're willing to serve and be the last of all and servant of all, and you're willing to, not only that, you're willing to serve the, low, the helpless in society like children, you're actually serving me. And not just me, he says, you're serving God. How encouraging is that? How encouraging is that? We want to elevate ourselves. We want to do things that draw attention sometimes to ourselves. We want credit. And that's okay. Um, but that is not what we should be seeking. Um, rather, we should have hearts willing uh, to serve the lowly and to love them with the love of Christ. All right, so learning to be, learning our position, learning our place, and therefore that enables us to serve. We were, went to a graduation yesterday, and the main point of the speaker that I got out of it was, um, you know, what you do is dependent on who you are, right? Who are you in here? Um, what you do reveals who really is in your heart and what is really in your heart. And that is very important. If we are really, we belong to Christ, then all our actions, our attitude, and our, and our speech uh, will reflect the presence of Christ. And so if Christ is willing to serve the lowliest and the helpless, then we should be as well. Right? Okay, so, third, learning to work with others. We'll look, work with other fellow believers. Mark, uh, in verse 38, John said, that, now it's interesting here, uh, Mark singles out John. This is one of the only times he singles out one apostle. And even though it is John speaking, I would presume that this is not just John, but possibly he's speaking for other disciples as well. But John said to him in verse 38, So John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. So notice the text here and what's going on. John is a bit put off because someone else is casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, I want to be 
careful here in that we want to be careful here. Not all things done in Jesus' name are good, right? <laughs> nor wise, nor does it mean that we approve of it. Because there are lots of people out there, right, uh, who, who are doing things in Jesus' name that are simply unbiblical and are self-serving. So there are people out there like that, very much so. And we, we are aware of that. So from one point of view, John is right not to condone this on face value, but it takes time, of course, to know whether someone is truly a follower of Christ. However, um, Jesus is probably addressing their hearts here and trying to train them too in the sense that John and possibly the disciples, were, were they really concerned for Jesus' reputation? You see, that's why we, we always start with our hearts when any kind of conflict. We need to look at our hearts and get the log out of our eyes first before we start accusing others. But here, it's like, are they really concerned for Jesus' reputation, His name? I'm not sure, but there is a clue in the text that may show us something. Notice how they said at the end there that the man was not one of us. So what does that point to? Well, it might point to the fact, it could be that the disciples were uh, felt that, you know, they were maybe jealous for their power. Maybe they felt that they were the only ones that really were able to cast out demons. And they were the only ones that had the power of the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. Um, because they were, by the way, one of the twelve, one of the elite. Right? Could you possibly see that scenario? Poss- yeah, probably. Could be. Um, and we want to respect the twelve disciples. They hold a special place. We're certainly not... Uh, disrespecting them. They are due the honor that is rightfully due to them. But in this case, they were perhaps a little bit elitist. John and the rest of the disciples were focused on whom? They may not have been focused on Jesus' honor, but their own power, which we saw last time that, you know, they actually couldn't exorcise a demon in the last chapter. And I, I mentioned the fact that, hey, was it possibly because they... They were dependent on themselves. They became so dependent on themselves because they saw how, ooh, if I said this and did that, oh, the demon went away. And they, they started to gain self-confidence. And then, therefore, God does not honor self-confidence. They, God honors dependence on, on Him. That's what part of faith is, right? So they've already shown some sense, some, uh, in the past some faithlessness, and God doesn't honor that. But they don't realize that their experience of the kingdom, perhaps, is very limited. Isn't that so true of us as Christians? We, we limit our experience of Christianity and, and sometimes hold that as the only one there is and then we use that to judge others, right? Uh, they need to learn that their experience is not the standard. And they also, of course, need to focus on the Lord Himself. If someone's doing ministry in Jesus' name, that is a good thing. If they're dependent on God and dependent on Jesus to do this and not self, uh, that's, that's a good thing. We see other people doing that. And they needed to understand that simply being the twelve disciples, simply being associated with Jesus, does not give them authority. Their authority comes from Jesus. And Jesus gives to whom He will His authority. Right? Not just them. Lots of other Christians. And Jesus gives abilities to lots of other Christians. Um, And um, so... We need to be generous here. I think Jesus' main message here is that he's being tolerant to a degree. He's generous. Again, we know there are false uh, teachers and prophets out there. That's not, he's not saying that there aren't any. Um, but Jesus here is teaching them about their heart. And uh, we want to work alongside other believers of other 
denominations and other traditions. Obviously, there are limits to that. <laughs> there are those that do not believe in biblical Christianity, and we don't partner with them. But there are others, many others, whom um, we, um, many others whom we can work alongside. Um, and um, I remember. Um, I remember I grew up in a, a group of churches, and why, the reason why I don't call them a denomination is because they themselves do not believe in denominations, but in reality they are our denomination, just a more looser, looser form of that, a group of churches, you know. And I grew up in this uh, group of churches, and we definitely had the distinct teaching, um, well, the, the distinct feeling that came from their teaching that our group of churches was really the only valid church of Christ. And we grew up having the attitude that all other Christian denominations and churches were not really the true church. I remember we were at Hershey Park. This is when Gabriel was, wasn't born yet. Nancy was pregnant with Gabriel and she went to the bathroom. I sat on the bench waiting for her and this woman was there and I just started talking with her and things of faith came up and I found out that she is a member of that old Denominational group of churches I was with, and and I told her where we were worshiping. We were at that time at an evangelical free church, whores, and uh, she said very seriously, and not jokingly, but very gravely, she said, "Why did you leave the church?" And I want to say because of people like you. But anyways, um, see, they had this attitude that their church is the only true church of Christ. How arrogant is that, you know? And it, you know, I, I had to come out of that for many years. And it, of course, we came out of that. I came out of that precisely because of wrong exegesis, wrong theology, wrong teaching. But it's like, are you telling me that Bible-believing, Christ-centered, conservative Christians of other denominations are not also believers? They, they are another part of the body of Christ, also doing the work of Christ. So we need to be careful about that. Of course, there are many of many churches out there that are not true churches, but we recognize that. But here, Jesus is being generous, so we need to we need to be we need to be careful about our hearts about that. You know what? The best thing is just wait and see. Again, the heart will come out because of who we are, right? And someone claims to be a Christian, we will just wait and see. We just, we don't judge. We don't have to judge them there, right there. We, uh, the, they, the, the fruit will be born sooner or later. We will see that. And that, that is up to the Lord. So we let that go. Unless, of course, they're doing something or saying something that is outright wrong, blasphemous, un, unscriptural. That's different. That's very obvious. Right? We, we need to call that out um, because that could be very dangerous. Okay, lastly, it, it, the last point is kind of a rehash of the first point, which is learning to trust in the God who knows and sees all that you do. Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Again, it kind of goes back and it's tied into this you know, greatness and last of all, first of all kind of teaching as well. Perhaps you've served in a way that does not draw attention. Perhaps you uh, what you do behind the scenes is not recognized by anyone. There are many who serve the kingdom of God and in His church in ways that are not noteworthy, not obvious. Can you think of someone like that, perhaps? Even right here in Evergreen. Yeah. You know, 
people who do behind the work scenes. You know, if we had a building, which we pray that the Lord would someday uh, grace us with, you know, cleaning floors, doing toilets. Does anybody notice these kinds of things? Probably not. Does anybody thank the person that's doing it? Probably not, because you don't even know who it is necessarily. Um, just pa- speaking with someone recently about someone we mutually knew and how that person did so much work uh, behind the scenes to support their pastor behind the scenes. And no one knows about it. You know? Um, you yourself have done lots of things, I'm sure. Preparation work, a setup work um, that, that, that facilitate and serve others. Right? So much of ministry is really setting up things, getting things ready so that other people can do their part of the ministry. So it's all kind of a, you know, everybody plays their part, right? The sound guys back there, we, always, we bring sound people. No one ever notices sound people until... And everybody looks back there, right? So they never get any credit because they're behind the scenes. But they spent time setting all this up. The musicians sent all this up. So that what? So that the musicians got to play the music so that the speaker and people come up can actually be heard, and so that we can play our part in the ministry. So, so much of ministry is, is um, not taken notice of and not given credit for. We need to give credit where credit is due. Um, and it's very important. Uh, so we don't, as followers of Christ, seek recognition. Of course not. We don't seek recognition. But we should be the first to give it all the time. Good habit to have. Constantly look for ways to thank people. Just, just that. Just think of a way to thank someone every time you see them, no matter who it is, all the time. Give recognition. That's, that is encouragement to all. Um, and, but, but not to seek recognition. So, but to give it. And, but when it is given to you, um, if, if someone gives you recognition, just receive it with grace and thankfulness to God. Um, and in the end, really people... People oftentimes um, are encouraged by that. Um, and, and God will reward you. God knows all. He sees all. God knows all in the big sense. The first point was about redemption. He knows everything. He planned redemption. He executed redemption. He applies redemption. He knows it all. That's a big thing. But God also knows, someone was saying today, preaching for the big things and the little things. Uh, but he also knows the little things as well. These things don't go unnoticed with our God. And he will reward us in the end. Even though we don't seek rewards, he will reward us. Um, sometimes there's present rewards. Um, mostly it's rewards at the end. So discipleship training is continuing on. We are learning to trust in a God who knows all. We are learning our place, and therefore our knowing our place helps us actually to serve others, right? Learning to work with others and to encourage others in their work and ministry. And again, knowing and learning that God understands everything, knows all, sees all, even the tiniest little thing that we do that nobody sees. Jesus is gracious to all his disciples and all who desire to follow him. He's constantly training us. He never stops guiding us and training us through his word, through his, through others, through one another, through your pastor, your elders, through parents, uh, through one another. He's testing us also through situations in life, all situations in life, all circumstances in life. 
whether hard or easy. All of our experiences um, may and are, are, are used by God, uh, again, to train us. And how beautiful it is, isn't it, to see God's people, therefore, now living God's way for God's glory. We don't just train. We don't just train for the purpose of training and being disciples. We train and are disciples so that we can live in a way that honors God, that brings a glory to Him. And by the way, we actually actually enjoy. We do. We enjoy that. Um, uh, the greatest among us are not necessarily the famous, the rich, the most powerful, the most influential, the kings and queens and presidents and all these people, the greatest among those who call themselves followers of Christ are you. You get up every day when you don't want to get up and you serve your spouse, you serve your husband or wife, you serve your children, you serve your parents day in and day out with great things, Middle things, small things, in every way. Right? And all this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit in obedience to Christ. Um, and you do so without recognition. You do, do so without fanfare. You do so consistently, persistently, and you persevere to the very end. Don't ever think that your daily, possibly you might call it your mundane life, is not great. Just because others don't see it, or, you know, just because you don't think you have much influence, none of that really matters. God sees your heart, God sees you, God sees what you are doing, and He will reward you, He does reward you, and He will reward you. He is the only audience whom we should be concerned about when it comes to greatness. And our greatness does not come from us. It is because we are united to Christ. Because anything we do now as a follower of Christ, we do for Christ, because of Christ, and it's, it's, it's all coming from Him and for Him. Christ is preeminent in all things, it says in Colossians, in all of our life. We're great because He is great. And he is the servant of all. He is the least of all and servant of all. How amazing thought is that? How beautiful of a thought is that? God Almighty is the greatest servant of all. And we can be too when we are connected to him. You are the greatest in this room. Those who sacrifice for others, give to others, die to self with no thought of themselves, just like your Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest among you. And he said, you who are the greatest will be last and servant of all. Let's pray.